0: This message was recorded live at the Ark Church in Conroe, Texas. Don't you appreciate our band? Don't they do a great job? Great stuff. We started a series last week called Think Different. And the idea behind Think Different is that as as you come into a relationship with Christ, it doesn't just impact uh, who you are spiritually and impact heaven when when you die, although that's wonderful but it is to impact our life and our thinking on this earth now. And we're beginning to think, learning how to think differently. And this morning I want to I talk about redefining your life. Last week we talked about thinking differently about God. And what we're realizing is, is that our Christian life is a process of learning to think differently. That church is not just something, hey, we come to church on Sunday, we check the box and like we go about our life and God's not even involved in our life until we come back to church again. But what we're finding out is God wants to be involved in all of our life, and he's causing our thoughts to come in line with his and their better thoughts. Now, redefining is is a process. We have moments where, what I would call critical moments, that we can redefine. One of them was a a reminder to me of of a priest who had spent 50 years in the ministry in a, in a parish in Dublin, Ireland. And at the end of his 50 years, the church uh, wanted to send him on, a, on his dream vacation, and so they paid for an all-expensive trip for somewhere he's always wanted to go, Las Vegas, Nevada. <laughs> and he lands at LaGuardia Airport in New York City, he's going through customs and the very bored customs agent looks at his passport, then looks at him and does a double take. And he goes, oh my gosh, it's you, Elvis. I know it's been a long time, but it's still you. I knew you weren't dead, Elvis. I was one of the believers. I know you've always been alive. Elvis, it is so good to see you. Welcome to America again, Elvis. And the priest looked at him and said, are you crazy, man? I'm a priest from Dublin. And he shook his head and grabbed his passport back, walked away, thinking about crazy Americans. He lands in Las Vegas, catches a cab, tells the cab driver he wants to go to the Bellagio. They get in the cab, and the cab driver keeps looking in the rearview mirror. Finally, he goes, Elvis, I knew it was you, man. I knew you weren't dead. I believed, I never believed them when they said you were dead, Elvis. You own this town, man. It's so good to see you back. Elvis was so glad. And the priest looks at him with this look on his face. He's like, for the love of the saints, man. I'm a priest from Dublin. And uh, he gets to the Bellagio. He's getting his stuff out of the cab and the cab driver's making a phone call. And the priest carries his bags to the front door and the manager of the Bellagio sees him and goes, oh my gosh, it's you, Elvis. It's true, Elvis. Elvis, welcome back. I, I took the liberty of changing your reservation I moved you to the, to the owner's penthouse. It's 3,000 square feet, looks out over the entire city. I hope you don't mind, Elvis. It's on the house. And we've stocked it with all the peanut butter and banana sandwiches that you can eat. And, and Elvis, anything you want to drink. And, and by the way, here's $20,000 worth of chips. When you're here, you gamble for free. You run out, you just let me know. It's so good to see you, Elvis. And the priest looked at him and went, Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> We all have moments when we can redefine our lives. That was his moment. How about you? What as you think about yourself? How do you think about yourself? Now, there are some different definers in people's lives. And and, and this these are pretty much common to all of us. One of us people define their lives by their ability. You know, if you're a musician or you are very smart or you're an athlete, people often talk about some of their skills and their abilities and they define their lives that way. If you're if you're you're Athletic, one of the biggest challenges for athletes is that as they get older, those skills begin to diminish. That's why they have such a difficult time retiring. Their whole identity has been built around their ability. Then there's uh, status. Status is where you stand in society. Now, we're always jockeying and trying to look like we're people of status. Joy grew up in Miami, Florida, and in the 50s and 60s, there was a, a, a huge influx of Cubans that came over as Fidel Castro was bringing communism into Cuba. And the first wave that came over, Joyce said, really were a huge blessing to the area because they were the doctors, the lawyers, the professors, the business people. Some of the greatest minds left their high place of status in Cuba. But when they came to the United States, many of them had to take menial jobs for a while. So status is something people are jockeying for, but it can change. And then there's the one that very, almost all of us deal with, and that is defining our lives by our our appearance. How do we look? Short, tall, skinny, chubby, blonde, brunette, jacked, not so jacked. And as we, now here's one thing I will tell you though, I got got news for you. Your appearance will change. It's going to happen much as you want to fight it, you can fight it all you want. I'm fighting it now. But it's going to change. And uh, in fact, the Bible says the outward man decays, the inward man's renewed day by day. I realize that's not a scripture everyone has on their, on their refrigerator. Praise God, the outward man's decaying. No, but it, I was telling, Joy and I were laughing. I, I went to the gym where I work out. And uh, I went in and there was a girl behind the counter, a young girl, about 20. And she said, hey, and, and, and she smiled. But it wasn't a... A hey, like, hey. It was a, Aw. <laughs> I told Joy when I got home, I said, I got the grandpa smile. <laughs> Aw, you look like my grandpa. You know, and so I, I realize now that anytime I'm out and about and young girls smile at me, it's because either one, I'm their pastor, or B, I remind them of their dad or their grandfather. <laughs> so hate to tell you this, guys, but. Appearance changes. You say, well, it didn't used to be that way 40 years ago, but yeah, there's a lot of water under the bridge now. And if you're building your whole identity on your appearance, I don't care if you get your face lifted so many times that when you raise your eyebrows, your socks pull up, you are, (laughs) it's going to change. And then the last one is, is heritage. Now, this is something that's been different of late. Heritage, your upbringing, your race, where you're from. And that has, DNA testing has changed how we've seen that. I had my DNA tested two years ago, wound up 49.2% Jewish. I was thinking I was English and, you know, Clayton's a pretty English name. English and German, 59% Jewish. Let me tell you something. If you're racially prejudiced, don't get your DNA tested. Because you're going to find out what you hate you is. And, uh, <laughs> just say All these things are, are subject to change. But here's, here's one thing that doesn't change how God sees us. And He sees us differently. When the, uh, when the prophet Samuel went to anoint the next king of Israel, Saul had been the king. But he was a bad king, and the Lord told Samuel, he said, go to Jesse's house. They brought out all of Jesse's sons, and the first son was big, tall, handsome guy. He was 5 foot 10 inches tall. And he uh, said, so how do you know that? I, I made it up. But he was, uh, <laughs> he's this tall guy, and, and the prophet says, that's him right there. And the Lord had a, had a different thought, and I love this passage. The Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now that's good news for us. Because people might look at you and go, wow, you're tall and handsome, or you're, you're short and beautiful, or whatever you are, and they judge you by that. But the Bible said that's not how God looks at us. He looks at our heart, our spiritual condition, who we are to him. And that's good news. Because then we can begin to take those spiritual definers, and we can define our lives as the way he sees us, not necessarily the way that outside influences see us, not the heritage, the appearance, the ability, the status. Those aren't the things that are the biggest definitions because all those things can change. And if we're smart, we'll begin to look at ourselves like God sees, not the outside, the inside. We begin to look at the heart. The Bible says very often that we are spirit and soul and body. We're not just a body. We're not just a mind. We're a spirit, soul, and body. That spirit is the eternal part of us. And that doesn't change. And that's helpful. Now, this morning, I have to reveal a big secret. I mentioned I just I, I buried my dad a couple of weeks ago. And my mom asked that I would hold on to the secret and, until he, he goes on to heaven. And last year, about this time, I'm driving down 2854. I get a phone call on my cell. It's my mother. My mom rarely calls. I, I answer. I'm always the one that calls. Answer the phone. Hey, mom, how are you doing? She says, hey, how are you doing, sweetheart? I said, good. She said, she said, hey, I have something to tell you. You never like getting those kind of phone calls. Okay, you've got something to tell me. She said, she said it's something that I've held secret for a long time. I'm thinking to myself, Oh, dear Lord, Mom, you're 83 years old and in a nursing home. You're way too old to have an affair at this point in time. <laughs> she, she, said, she said, Alan, she said, I've been trying to tell you this since 1990. I'm like, really? I'm like, the, the drama is building. <laughs> she said, when your dad and I were, were married in 1956, she said, we tried for a couple of years to have uh, children, and we couldn't have children. So we went into a fertility specialist in Atlanta, Georgia, where where they were living at the time and she said that we found out that, that your father could not have children. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. And and where is this going? Because here I am <laughs> and and I said, so what happened? Mom well, said said I was working with a doctor fertility doctor and for free he I was artificially inseminated. And that means she had a sperm donor and and so I said, let me get this straight, Mom. My dad is not my dad. Is that what you're telling me? She said, honey, that's, that's what I'm telling you. I've been trying to tell you this since 1990. Well, thank you now that I'm 58 years old. It is good to know. <laughs> it's good to know. It's good to know that. She said, yeah, she said, we, we, she said, we couldn't have children. She said, I said, so who was, is, who is my father? She said, I don't know. All I know is that he's a medical student there at the, at the hospital and he's your paternal. He's your biological father. I'm thinking, so now the 49% Jewish makes sense (laughs) because we found out that, that I come from a Ukrainian Jewish family who came from the Ukraine that my family name is Yarmolitsky. And so I'm like, wait a minute. So I thought I was English and German. Now I'm a 50% 50% Jewish name, Yarmolinsky, evangelical pastor. Hallelujah. <laughs> so, so I told Joy, don't mess with me. I am twice chosen. Uh, <laughs> but here's the thing people say, wow, was that like a crisis moment for you? It really was not. Uh, in fact, I was more amused than I was agonized. And because I told my mom, I said, you know, I said, my dad was the one who loved me. My dad was the one who raised me. My dad was the one who gave me his name. I said, identify with, I, I'm still a Clayton. I might be half Jewish, but I'm, I'm, still a, I'm still a Clayton. Identify there. That and the fact that I really put more value on my spiritual heritage than my natural heritage. Because I know who I belong to and I'm, I'm his child. So... So it, it didn't mess with my head near as much as people thought it would. It is an interesting story though. Yeah. And, and so it's a, that's what I'm saying. Get DNA tested at your own peril. Just go ahead. <laughs> Just go ahead. But in the Bible, there's a great story. It's one of my favorites of, of, of redefining. We're talking about redefining ourselves. How, how do we redefine our lives to, to see ourselves the way God does? And in the Bible, there's the story of Mephibosheth and, and David. David and Jonathan were best friends. Jonathan was King Saul's son. Saul was a horrible king trying to kill David, but Jonathan and David were close. They loved one another. They were, they were really like blood brothers. They had a, they had a covenant between themselves and, and uh, that they would take care of one another. And Saul and Jonathan both died in battle on the same day. And the day that they died in battle, uh, Mephibosheth, Saul's little son, uh, had a nanny or a nurse, who was so afraid of David coming in to take over the kingdom that she picked the little boy up and she was running. She was physically fleeing and dropped Mephibosheth. And when she dropped him, it must have caused some kind of spinal cord injury and he he became lame in both of his feet. So as we fast forward a number of years, David is now the king. He is is the king of, of a united Israel. And David wants to find somebody that belongs to Jonathan. Let's read this story here. It's a little bit long, but stay with me. It's a great story. David asked, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba, and they summoned him to appear before David. The king said, you Ziba at your service, he replied. The king asked, is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? And Ziba answered the king, there's still a son of Jonathan. He's lame in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. Zeba answered, he's at the house of Machir, son of Amiel, near Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Machir, son of Amiel. And when Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied, don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's, Saul's steward, and said to him, I've given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring him the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. I I call this a a huge redefining of of how Mephibosheth had to think about himself. I mean, when we first see him, he knows he's the grandson of Saul and an enemy of David. He blames David for all of his problems because because his his nanny was fleeing from David. He's, he's dropped and why he's lame in his feet. He knows he has no status in life because he even refers to himself as a dead dog. And he, he's so poor, he didn't even have his own house. He's living with someone else. Someone else is showing him charity. Now that's where we find him. But then we have David who just wanted to show kindness for Jonathan's sake. And so David goes looking for, he goes looking for, where can I find, is there anyone still alive? And, and Zeba evidently had Mephibosheth on his Instagram account. He was able to spot him and, and pick him off. He found, he found where he was and said, there's there's one guy. And David, David, and they kept telling David, he's lame in his feet. That didn't bother David. David wasn't looking for someone to do something for him. David just wanted to do something for somebody that belonged to Jonathan. And so, can you imagine, can you imagine Mephibosheth sitting there in the house and all of a sudden all these chariots pull up and these soldiers come in and they go, we're looking for Mephibosheth. And he's probably trying, he's thinking to himself, oh great, he found me, he found me. They're like, Mephibosheth, sir, you're coming with us. And they took him to David. When he sees David, he's still scared. That's why David said, don't be afraid. He's probably trembling, going, going, why why are you looking at a a dead dog? And David blessed him and lifted him and restored him. And so now, can you imagine Mephibosheth going to bed, and the next day he wakes up. He's got to think completely different. He'd been blaming David for all of his problems. Now he realized David never was his problem. He was a nurse who believed a lie. Then he's thinking to himself, I can't refer to myself as a dead dog anymore because I'm sitting at the king's table. He looks around, that's the highest place. all." All the king's sons are there. He's with family and he's thinking to himself, I'm not poor anymore. I don't even need to live in somebody else's house. I've got lands restored to me. I've got a staff of 35 men and their families who are now working for me. And so in one day, he goes from a low state to an elevated state. And I'm sure he's thinking, I didn't do anything to deserve this. He's like, no, you didn't. But because you belong to Jonathan and David is good, David intervened in his life and lifted his life. It's an amazing story of grace. And you're thinking, man, I wish that would happen to me, Alan. I wish I had a rich uncle that I didn't know about that would find me and bring bring me up and pay all my bills and buy my house and put me in in a nice place. I wish I had someone that would do that for me. Well, you may not have a rich uncle, but you got a big God who found you in a dark place and lifted you out. And because you belong to Jesus, you got elevated to a wonderful place. Redefining how we think about ourselves. So how does that happen? How do you begin to do that? It is a process. It is a faith process. In other words, you've got to believe what God says about you. I I read something recently, and it just jumped out at me, and it made so much sense. The author said, if you can believe Genesis 1-1, you can believe the rest of the Bible. Genesis 1-1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. See, if you see, if you can step out and believe that there wasn't just a bang and this all evolved... If you can step out and believe that there is a divine person who's brilliant, he's beyond brilliant and he's good and he created this earth and he created the majesty of the universe, the billions of galaxies and billions of stars. If you can believe that God did that, then you can believe whatever else he says about you, that you didn't show up here by accident, that God had a divine plan for your life and what he says about you is true. And this is why the Bible says, "We walk by faith." 2 Corinthians 5:7, "We walk by faith" and not by sight. So we begin to live our lives believing what God says about us as opposed to simply believing the other things that have defined our lives. It's not just your heritage. It's not just your ability. It's not just your appearance. It's something beyond that. It's what God says you are. That's what matters most. I talked to a lady down here one day on a Wednesday night. She came down. She said, Alan, I've been reading about these people who were martyrs and they were martyred for Christ. She said, "I, I don't know that I could ever do that. If I could, if I could die for my faith, I said, don't keep asking yourself that question. I said, just, just live for him every day. Don't, don't try to figure, do I have the faith? Do I have the faith? And as I was thinking about that, guys, we need to stop asking ourselves if we have faith and start telling ourselves we do have faith. We do believe the Bible. We do believe that God's telling us the truth. We're believers. If you believed in Jesus Christ, that he died for your sins and that God raised him from the dead on the third day, if you believe that, you've already had the biggest miracle. Everything else is secondary. So it's a faith thing too. We have to dare to believe what God says about us. It's not just what we've seen, not just what other people have said. Some people have had way too much voice in our life. It's God who needs to have the voice in our life because when you made Jesus your Lord, you didn't get refurbished. You are not. You know Amazon has that? You ever seen that? You can, get so, you can get these items refurbished. I don't know if I want refurbished. I want new. Because if it's refurbished, uh, that may or may not be good but if it's new, I'm trusting that. That's why the Bible said, if anyone is in Christ, it doesn't say he's a refurbished creation. It said he is a new creation. All things have passed away. All things have become new. That's good news. And by the way, when God makes something, you don't have to send it back. It's good stuff. Look what it says in first Peter. It said, you are, he's talking to believers. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. I love that verse. That's, that's talking about us. That's talking about anyone who's made Jesus their Lord. Say, I don't feel too much like a, like a special possession, whether you feel like it or not. This is what God said about it. And this is where we have to believe. We begin to identify with what God has done for us because we belong to Jesus. Terry Wardle is a author who wrote a book called Identity Matters. And Terry said when he was just a little guy, about eight or nine years old, he he was riding his his hand-me-down Swin bike, the girl version. Y'all remember when they used to do the girl bikes with the dip in the middle? He said he he had the dip in the middle, had the saddlebags. He said, but it was freedom. And when his mom said he could leave the neighborhood, he thought he was something special. He rode over the railroad tracks and he rode on this covered one lane bridge. And he meant he was feeling big about himself. He said, when all of a sudden four teenage boys step out at the end of the bridge, he tries to pass and one of them grabs his bike and says, where do you think you're going? He was a scared little kid. He couldn't hardly speak. In fact, the kid grabbed him and said, I don't know who you think you are. And Terry, he's thinking in his mind, I'm about to get beat up here. He grabbed me and said, what's your name? He said in a high pitched voice, Terry, Terry Wardle. He said, and he noticed when he said Terry Wardle that the other three boys started looking at one another like, and the boy who had his shirt said, You in a relation to Tom Wardle? Tom Wardle was a cousin, much older, but he played defensive end on the local high school football team. Evidently, he's a big hombre. And Terry, Terry Wardle said, Time to lie. He went, he's my brother. He said, the guy let go of his shirt, smoothed his shirt down. said, we were just kidding with you, just, just you. He said, you're a good kid. If anyone ever messes with you, you just let us know and we'll take care of it. And they took off running. And Terry Wardle said, he found out something right there that when life gets rough, you need something bigger than yourself to identify with. And I'm thinking, yeah. Because in life, when we head down this path of life, we get stuff that gets in our way and it demands, who are you? You don't have to just go, I'm Alan Clayton, half Jewish. You can just say, hey, <laughs> hey, I'm Alan Clayton. But more than that, I belong to God. I'm his own special person. I'm chosen. It's, listen, when, when life gets rough, it's time to identify up, not down. And because we're in Christ, we have an opportunity to do that. And really, when you stop and think about it, it's all because of Jesus anyway. Don't you know what Mephibosheth is lying there on the bed that first night, and he's lying there thinking about it? All of a sudden, he's a landowner. He's got servants. He's eating at the king's table. He's like, he became the man overnight. I'm sure he's thinking to himself, I don't deserve any of this. I didn't earn this. I can't do anything to earn this. The only reason I'm here is because I'm Jonathan's son. I belong to Jonathan. And because of Jonathan, I am a very blessed man. Listen. None of us can stand and go, I'm so awesome. I deserve this. It's because we belong to Jesus. And because we belong to him, we're blessed people. Ephesians says this, Ephesians 2, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, transgressions means sins, it is by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Now, whether you feel like that verse is true or not, let's go ahead and step out and believe it anyway. I'm in Christ. I'm raised with him. I'm seated in heavenly places. Thank God. I just, I just identified up as I redefined my life. My pastor told, told a story and I'll close. He told the story of a man that he knew that was going through a difficult time, just, a, just trial after trial after, after tough time. And, he's, and the, the man said he, had, he went to bed one night and he had a dream. He said in the dream, he was walking through this barren, bleak, foggy, dark land. He said, you're just looking around, it's just horrible looking, and he saw a figure coming towards him, and he couldn't tell who it was, but as the figure continued to come, the man in the dream said he realized it was Satan himself. He said the, this, he began to have fear just, in, just envelop him, and as he's looking at fear incarnate, Satan was scowling at him, he said, all of a sudden, right in, the, in his dream, Jesus appeared and he stood in between the man and Satan. He said, not only did he stand there, he stood there for a while. He said, and then Jesus began backing up and he backed up right into the man. This is a dream. Of course, he backed up right into the man and his hands became in his hands and his arms became in his arms and Jesus backed right up into him and said in his dream, this man wound up pointing his finger at Satan and said, you bow your knee. And Satan bowed his knee. And he realized it's not because of who he is. It's because of whose he is. And we identify with the one who loves us, who cared for us, who died for us, and God raised him from the dead. Would you bow your head with me just for a moment? Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. I'm going to ask, please, everyone, just out of respect for the Lord and for the people around you, if you would, just stay still just for a minute. If you came this morning and said, Alan, I, I don't know that I have a relationship with the Lord. I really want one. I, I, I want to be identified with him. I want to be sure. Or you're here and say, I, I used to have a relationship with God and I know that and he knows that and I've walked away from him, but I don't want to do that anymore. I, I want to walk close. I, I want to walk close with him. I want to come back home. Said so your bow and eyes are closed, we're gonna say a prayer. I'm not gonna ask you to stand up or come to the front. But I'm asking ask you to pray this prayer with us. And I'm going one more thing. If that's you, and either one of those situations applies to you, would you just acknowledge that quickly with an uplifted hand? Say, Alan, that's me. Would you pray for me? I, I, I want to acknowledge the Lord as my Savior, or I want to come back to him. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the hands. Thank you. Anybody else? Thank you for your courage. Thank you. Great. Front, back, got it. All over. Thank you. You can put your hands down. We're going to pray. If you didn't lift your hand and wanted to, you can still pray this prayer with us. It's a heart prayer. We believe with our heart. It's a heart prayer. We're going to pray this prayer together, whole church family. Say, dear God, I know mankind needs a savior. I know I can't save myself. Jesus, I believe you're the son of God. I believe you died on the cross for my sins. And God raised you from the dead right now, I confess you as my Lord, as my Savior, as the one who forgives me and restores me. Thank you, Jesus. My past is forgiven. I have a relationship with you. I'm a new creation in Christ because I've said yes to you. Now, the head still bowed just for a moment. Heavenly Father, I'm grateful for those that prayed that prayer. Some have come home, some have come back. And Lord, we're grateful that they stepped out of darkness into your marvelous light. Father, for the rest of us, thank you that we can begin to think differently about ourselves, that you see us differently. Thank you that we can be elevated by the Lord, by his grace. And Lord, we ask you that you would help us begin to think in line with you because that's where answers are. Victory is solutions. We give you all the praise for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this message. For more about The Ark, visit thearkchurch.com.